Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Okay, well, it is great to be here with all of you this morning. Thanks for joining us, both here and online. Uh, we're continuing our study in Romans this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 3. Um, actually, I, I suppose we'll pick up in Romans 2.25, just uh, the last few verses there by way of review. And uh, as we continue our study in Romans here today, we'll get as far as uh, it's maybe verse 20 or 21. And, and it's here that Paul is going to uh, begin to bring the argument that he began back in chapter 1 and verse 18. He's going to start to bring that argument to a close. And what has the argument been? Well, really what Paul has been putting forth here at the beginning of this letter, this doctrinal letter that's, that, that has the intentions of teaching a church what it means to follow Jesus, what it is that we believe and why we believe it. Here at the very beginning, Paul is seeking to make sure it's understood that we are sinners in need of God. That's foundational. That's what we need to understand. And so, yes, if you're keeping track, this will be the third week in a row that I just tell you how terrible of a sinner you are. So let's just get that out in the open right now, okay? Let's just all embrace it and understand it, but also know, as Paul will bring us to here again today, that though, yes, we were dead in our sins, we don't need to stay there. And so that would be my appeal to you this morning as well, that if someone is here, or maybe someone's watching online, and you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, don't hear what I have to share today as simply discouragement, but rather encouragement to give your life to Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal. You know, in my years in working in, uh, in, a, in a corporate job, in corporate America, we often had this phrase, especially when we were trying to make changes within the workplace, that we would say you need to create a burning platform. Some of you may have heard that before. This phrase, create a burning platform, is really when you're dealing with resistance to change and you know that the organization, the business needs to change, you've got to create a sense of urgency. You have to start the platform on fire, if you will, to cause people to go, man, i got to jump i got to go because if I don't, I'm going to burn up. And this was in the business world. How much more importantly is it in, 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 in terms of our walk with Christ, in terms of the, the issues of life and death and eternity, that we have a burning platform? And that's really what it's about this morning is for us to understand, listen, apart from Christ, we are lost. And what Paul is going to give us here in the first part of chapter 3 is he's going to bring all of these arguments really to a, uh, to a culmination where he says, listen, I want you to understand just how bad humanity is. But then praise God, he doesn't leave us there. He brings us to a place then of understanding what it is that Christ has done for us. And so let's begin, as I mentioned, in Romans chapter 2, just by way of review in verse 25 and following, because this really starts to make its way into Chapter 3, and we read, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? 
For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you here this morning, Lord, recognizing that this is your word, and we give you thanks for it, and we do ask, Lord, that in our time in it here this morning, that it would be pleasing to you, and that by your Spirit you would bring transformation to our hearts and minds. Lord, give us understanding here today. Cause us, Lord, as has already been prayed, may I agree with that, Lord, and say, cause us to leave here different, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, Paul began with his introduction. At the beginning of this letter, Paul introduces himself. He, he gives insight into what it is that he's doing, the fact that he wants to come and visit them. And he really comes to a climax in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, where he declares with great boldness that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, why is he not ashamed? Oh, because it has power. He says this is the real deal. The gospel has the power to change lives, to change hearts and minds. It changed his life, after all. It's changed my life. And I know for many of you, the gospel's changed your life as well. And so from there, Paul begins to address everyone's need for that very gospel by helping us to see that we are all sinners in need of the same transformation. And so from the outright hedonistic sinner, the one who is suppressing the truth of God in order to partake of the lustful desires of the flesh, or even the moralist, the one who fancies themselves to be a good person but condemns themselves through the way that they judge others, seeing them as, as less than, to then the religious or the Jewish person who, who thinks that there's something because they grew up in the church, perhaps, or they have a Bible, or, or because outwardly they're circumcised, they're part of a, a, a covenant. But this outward, sign, this outward sign means nothing without the change inside. And so Paul's dealing with all these different groups of, of people. And then as he specifically, I don't care if you're a Jew outwardly. It means nothing if you don't uphold and keep the law inwardly. And by the way, you can't. You're unable to. You've proven that in your own life. And so you need the Messiah. It's Jesus, and he's come already. And so then, as Paul starts to make his way here into chapter 3, he begins to uh, really engage in, in what is kind of a question and answer format. Paul functioning as a very good teacher, almost as an attorney here, giving some closing arguments, seeking a guilty verdict on humanity, starts to anticipate what questions may come, what challenges might there be to the things that he's saying, and he begins to address them one by one. And that's what we see as we pick up here in chapter 3, as he really begins to anticipate what might the skeptic take exception to? And in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? You see, after Paul has basically said, here's all the things you put your faith and your trust in, the outward signs of your religion, and they mean nothing if there hasn't been a change inwardly, then this person might ask, well, what's the point then? What, what is there? Is there any profit of being a Jew in this context? So for the Jewish person, and even for the religious, they might ask the question of, what, what of these supposed blessings? What of being a chosen nation? For indeed, the, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. Is it for nothing? They might say, God, we've endured much hardship because we are your people. Does this, does this mean nothing? Paul replies, verse 2, much in every way. 
chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Paul says there is a blessing in being a Jew. And of the greatest blessing is that the word of God was entrusted to you. That is that the Old Testament scriptures, this great revelation of God, the origins of the world, the story of creation, the words of the prophets, it was first entrusted to God's chosen people. And God's work in and through His people was in order to make Himself known and and, in blessing His people that they would be a blessing to the nations, that they would be a blessing to all people. And so there is a benefit there. There is a, a privilege there. But this does not mean that they were saved. Jesus Himself declared as He was speaking to the religious leaders in the Gospel of John in chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, He says, You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about Me. But you are not willing to come to Me so that you may have life. And friends, the same is true of you and me. No differently than the Jewish person or the moralist who thinks, Hey, I've lived a pretty good life. If you're here and you come regularly on Sunday, maybe you even make it to midweek, you go to an occasional prayer meeting. You've got a Bible. You've got a cross necklace. You've been baptized. None of those things matter if Jesus hasn't taken up residence in your heart. If you've not surrendered your life to Him. And in the same way, perhaps you don't do some of those things, but yet you've surrendered your life to Christ. That's of greater importance. But then must follow the fruits of salvation, the obedience to His Word, then coming to church and engaging and being a part of fellowship and being baptized as an outward sign of an inward faith. Those things must follow your conversion, not be a substitute for it. We had the opportunity to do a baby dedication during our first service. And I love doing the baby dedications. It's a wonderful thing for us as a church family to do. It's us committing to a family to say, we're going to walk alongside you. We're going to be a part of you raising your your child to ensure that, that discipleship happens, that instruction happens. We're going to commit to holding you, parents, accountable to, to living out your faith in front of your children. Why? So that come a day when they understand they too would then surrender their lives to Christ. And that's the important thing. The dedication we did for little Amelia Lee today, as cute as she is, has no bearing on her salvation. It's rather us seeking God, saying, Lord, help us. It's her parents saying, Lord, help us to raise her in a way that's pleasing to you so that when the time comes, she would say, I've seen this modeled for me. I want to give my life to Christ. That's when she's saved. And for me, I went off to college believing that I had come to Jesus, believing that I had been living my life for Jesus. My goodness, as I packed up my car and headed south into the great state of Indiana. I swore I would never live in Indiana, by the way. No offense to anybody who lives in Indiana, but for me, I never wanted to go there. Tell God your your plans, right? So here I was, heading off to Indiana, and you know what? In my car, I had a Bible. That's right. I might have even had two. I can't recall. And I even had a devotional with me and by golly I had even told people that I prayed about where I was going to go to school man from the outside I was looking good like I had it all together but God by his grace showed me that though I drew near to him with my lips my heart was so far from him it didn't matter what I said what I told other people it didn't matter if I had a bible or two bibles or ten bibles in my car if I didn't have Jesus in my life I was lost and that was the case for me we must deal with this we must be willing to recognize that all these things that we can so easily put our confidence in as a way of obtaining our own righteousness accomplishes nothing 
And so for the Jewish people here that Paul was addressing, they had been given this amazing truth, this amazing revelation of the Creator God of the universe. But sadly, they had rejected Him. They had rejected the Messiah. And there are some who will reject this very truth. And this is what Paul addresses next. That though they have been given and trusted the Word of God, some people would still reject it. And anticipating such a challenge, anticipating what that does to people in terms of maybe shaking their faith or creating doubt in them, Paul says in verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? You see, and some of you may in fact struggle with this as well. I suspect that you do. What of those who reject the gospel? And maybe you say, well, we know there's a lot of people who reject the gospel, but what of those who you know? What of those who you trust? What of those who seem to be very firm in their conviction? Maybe you find them to be trustworthy. Maybe you think they're good people. Maybe they're, maybe they're even smart, you would say. Maybe they're people who are close to you. Maybe it's a family member or even a spouse who says, no, I've studied it, I've looked into it, I don't buy it. What of them? If they reject the Gospel, does this suddenly mean that maybe the truth of God's Word isn't the truth after all? What about some of those who were formerly professing evangelicals, some even pastors, or, or more recently here over this last year, a handful of Christian music artists who said that they went through a process of deconstructing their faith and had, sent, had essentially at this point renounced it. I wonder, did that shake you? Have any of these circumstances shaken you? Has it caused you to think, well, maybe this isn't the truth that I thought it was? I think it has for some. I think it has shaken some. Paul says, does their unbelief mean God's word has failed? Verse 4, he responds, certainly not. Certainly not. He says, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. He says, no way. He says, God is true. Man is the liar. Can't we look around at our culture today? Can't we look around at humanity today and to see the lies of men on display? Can we really find the word of an individual who says something contrary to Scripture and say, they've got it figured out? Do they have the reputation? Do they have the credibility? Are they the ones that you really want to trust? Or is it the word of God that's never changing? The best-selling book of all time. The word of God that's inerrant. It's without error. And, you, and, 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 and people who seek to say, no, there's errors in it. Though they haven't studied it. Put them up against some of the renowned apologists of our, of our age. They can defend the Word. But it doesn't even need us to defend it. It proves itself true from cover to cover, consistent from Genesis to Revelation. A book that was written, penned by people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 66 books, 40 authors, three different languages over the course of 2,000 years and it's consistent from cover to cover. That's the Word of God. It's living, it's active, it's powerful. But how quickly we can take somebody who just says, well, I don't believe it, and I think this, and go, oh, no. And, and listen, anything that I say to you, go and test it. Don't listen to me. I'm a man. Test it against the Word of God. Paul says, listen, I'll side with God's Word over that of man's Word any day of the week. And friends, if you find yourself today relating to this a little bit, I, I understand. I know that the enemy has a way of, of using these things in our life to, to shake us a little bit and to shake our foundation. Perhaps there is one in your own life who has rejected God's truth and it's caused you to wonder. But you must understand and no matter how highly you may think of such a person, just look at the evidence. It's men who are liars. God is truth. 
His word endures forever. And so ensure that your faith and your trust is in Him and in His word. We live in this world today of relative truth. And a lot of people don't want to call it that, but that's what it is. It's relative truth. It's this idea that you have your truth and I have my truth and we're just all going to be happy and just believing in our own truths until those truths conflict. And then suddenly somebody's got to be wrong, right? We're we're living in a culture today that's literally imploding upon itself because of that. Because of an unwillingness to embrace an absolute truth in a holy and righteous God. Paul goes on to quote then here from Psalm 51 here in the second half of verse 4 as he writes, or as it says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. This comes from Psalm 51. The great psalm of repentance. Why this reference? Why does Paul go here? Well, this psalm of repentance, it's, it's on the part of King David. These are King David's words, and it comes right after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and his sin was revealed, and now he's crying out to God, and, and, and he's seeking forgiveness, understanding that really there's no way for him to be forgiven. There's no way for him to right this wrong other than to just throw himself at the mercy of God. And it's right before these words that Paul includes here that David says this, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. You see, David agrees with Paul that God is true, that every man is a liar. And he says, God, your judgment is fair. It's just. He says, you'll be justified. And alluding to the judgment or the the judgment that will be sought over Jesus, he says, you will overcome. But you see, we try to be our own justifiers, don't we? How often have you heard somebody say, you can't judge me? Or maybe they say, only God can judge me. And they don't really think that either. And, and, And so we're so good at defending ourselves at trying to justify our own actions. As much as Paul may be functioning in sort of the the way of an attorney here, seeking a guilty verdict upon humanity, we too function as attorneys. Our own inner lawyer rising up, defending ourselves, and we're pretty good at it. And then sometimes people, when they begin to understand a little bit of God's character, a little bit of His nature, the fact that He is a merciful God, the fact that He is a God who works to take our sin and our failures and can turn it for His glory. Some then even come to this crazy thought that maybe the things they've done have their purpose or their benefit. That is that, hey, my sin ultimately brings glory to God. Maybe I should just continue in it. Paul begins to address this in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What is Paul saying here? Well, Paul continuing in this question and answer format has now come to this foolish idea that somehow if God has been glorified in that he forgives sin, then should I really be judged? Maybe. Maybe I should just keep on sinning so that God can do whatever God does and I'm just helping him out. My unrighteousness is to his righteousness, so I'll just continue in my unrighteousness and he will be more righteous. How convenient that is for me. 
hopefully many of you are thinking, that's dumb. Right? I hope you're thinking that. Because it is. And Paul says of this argument, look, I speak as a man. It's his way of saying, this isn't spirit-inspired. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prove a point here. In some respects, he's being sarcastic. I'm being foolish to prove a point. As he says in verse 6, certainly not. Certainly not. That's, that's foolish. And he goes on to, to say that there are some who charge that he says just this, that this is actually what he's teaching. And he says that if they're right, then they're, they're condemning him would be just. But this is not what he's taught. This is not what he's instructing. And Paul's going to come back to this idea again when we get to Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. He's going to say, Shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound? God forbid! Certainly not! Friends, we don't do evil that good may come out of it. We should not presume upon His grace. We cannot operate in the thinking that He is obliged to forgive or that He delights in forgiveness. So let's go ahead and give Him the chance to do some more. No, as we surrender our lives to Christ, we are to live in a way where the old is gone, the new has come. That we continue no longer in the pattern in which we've once lived. But we seek through the power of His Spirit to be victorious over the flesh. Putting the flesh to death daily. Are we perfect at it? No, we're not. But we're striving to please Him in our lives, not continuing in sin. And I would say to you this morning, if some of you are here and maybe you're struggling in some sort of habitual sin, you've been working hard, you've been trying your best, you've been trying to get over this. And we'll talk about that again here shortly. But I would submit to you that we're called out of that. It's no longer to be a part of our life. But as we'll look at here shortly, it's also not something that we can do in our own strength, but rather in giving our lives to Christ, allowing Him to do that work in our lives. And Paul goes on to say, verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Paul shifts gears now through verse 18, where he begins to bring somewhat of a leveling accusation. These are the closing arguments, if you will, uh, against everyone. Saying, first, are, are we better than the Gentiles? As he's still here addressing uh, the Jewish population, those who are, uh, consider themselves to be moral, those who consider themselves to be, uh, or maybe they don't see themselves as religious, but they are religious, are they, are they better? Are we better than those Gentiles who are in sin, since as Jews they are a special people, or, or even us, even, even, or I should say, even those who attend church regularly, those, those who do have an aspect of morality in their lives, are, are they better than the person who is just in, in, in blatant sin? Since maybe we try to live a good life, you go to church, are you better? Paul says, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Friends, we are all under sin. And this means that we, were, we are slaves to it. We were sold into it. And some people take exception to that. They say, I'm not a slave to anyone. I'm not a slave to sin. Well, you know the, you know the best test for you? to employ, if you have that mindset, try to stop. Go ahead, go forth. Don't sin again. Let me know how it goes. Right? I mean, that's the harsh reality of our fallen nature. Albeit Christian, you are redeemed, you are covered in the blood of the Lamb, you are no longer in condemnation because of your sin. You're still wrestling against the flesh. It's still warring in your members. There will come a time when you're in glory when you can say, praise the Lord, sin is gone. But until then, it continues to be a battle. 
We're a slave to sin, and without Christ, there is no hope. And this is where I would come back again to this idea that sometimes we are struggling. Sometimes you, you may be dealing with a sin in your life. It's a habitual sin. Hopefully it's not an unrepentant sin. Maybe it's something in your life you say, Lord, I don't want this in my life. I am struggling with this. I want this gone. But you just find yourself in this, in this pattern. And then the enemy uses it as, as, a, as a wonderful opportunity to heap shame and condemnation upon you. And I would suspect that the chances are, if that's you and you're dealing with something, and it can be any number of things, but chances are what you're trying to do is in your own discipline and in your own strength, you're just trying to stop. Over and over again, you're just saying, and some people, a, a rare a few people, sometimes have the level of discipline necessary to just kick something. But most people struggle and struggle and struggle. And it's not until we begin to have a heart change and a mindset change where we begin to, instead of focusing all of our strength and our effort on stop doing this, instead we focus on, I'm just going to pursue more of Jesus. I want more of him. I'm just going to seek after him more and more. I'm going to seek more of him in, in prayer and, and in his word, and I'm going to surround myself with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to focus less on this issue and more on him and ask, Lord, would you deliver me from this? And that's where I've seen victory in my own life, and that's where I've seen victory in the lives of others. And I would say to you this morning, if that's something, if what I'm saying doesn't entirely make sense to you, then that's an opportunity for you to pursue that and to say, I want to know more about that. Because that's a part of discipleship, is learning how to follow after Jesus more and more so that he can give you victory over these things in your life instead of you just trying day after day after day. We need to be in a place where we want more of Jesus and allow him to drive that out. Now here, from here then, as I mentioned, Paul begins to really make his closing arguments. As he says in verse 10, as it is written, and he's gonna, we're gonna, there's, there's 14 different things that we see here in this statement, 14 different things that he pulls from various places in the Old Testament, and he puts them together as a way to describe our condition. In verse 10, really through verse 18, what we have here is Paul's assessment of the human condition. No differently than when you go into a doctor and maybe there's something going on and you find yourself a little hesitant, going, man, what's the assessment going to be? Here's Paul saying, here's what your condition is. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so you see what Paul says here at the very beginning. He says, this is your standing before God. There's none who are righteous. Sin has affected your standing before God. He says, there is none who understands, verse 11. And so not only is your standing before God affected because of sin, but your mind is affected because of sin. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Not only has sin affected our standing before God, it's affected our minds, but it's also affected our motives, our desires, our objectives, our wills, our pursuits. It's invaded our lives. And so because of that, because now our motives are, are wrong because of sin and our desires are wrong because of sin and our objectives are wrong because of sin and our wills are wrong because of sin and our pursuits are wrong because of sin, then we become unprofitable. What does unprofitable, unprofitable mean? It means it's good for nothing. And so yes, the implication of Scripture is that we have become good for nothing. And you might say, well, wow, that's just so encouraging just love this series on sin, right? And yes, if you were a part of our life group on Thursday night, then you, like Jimmy, can say, well, I, I don't know about this, but in the last few weeks, you've called me a, a moron, a roadkill, and I'll just say, share with you what I share with Pastor Jimmy. Takes one to know one. <laughs> Guilty. 
Okay? That's, that's the reality. Scripture tells us that we were dead in our sin. There's no way to class that up. The old adage, you can't put lipstick on a pig. I mean, you can try, but it doesn't do much, right? We have to be willing to just go, this is our condition. Now, this word unprofitable, this language here is likened to that of spoiled produce. That's what I love about the Greek language, the way in which it was often used in the context. So what is that? So now you, okay, you call me a moron, and you call me roadkill. That was life group, right? You remember that, Jason. Uh, and, uh, and now unprofitable and spoiled fruit? Well, listen, let me, let, me, let me draw you into this a little bit. Have you ever had that moment? You have your fruit basket, whatever it is on the counter, and you go walking through the kitchen and everything's good, and all of a sudden, wham! What is that? And it takes you a minute. You've got to try and process this for a second. And then all of a sudden you go, I know what that is. And I walk over to the little basket that has the fruit in it, right? And I pick it up, and there it is on the bottom. There's that orange. I was going to eat that orange. And now it's just starting to ooze from the bottom of the basket, right? It is rotten. And you know what? What I typically do when I see that orange is I say to myself, just leave it there. It'll be good tomorrow. Right? No, you say, no, it's not. Why? It's become unprofitable. It's become good for nothing. Throw it away. It's not going to get any better. And that's what Paul says about our sinful humanity. It's not going to get any better. There's nothing you can do where you can suddenly make yourself more profitable apart from Christ. He goes on to say, as if it wasn't enough yet, verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. This speaks of the, the vileness that can come from our mouths. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And so you see, sin has affected our standing before God. Sin has affected our minds. Sin's affected our motives, our desires, our objectives, our wills, our pursuits. Sin has affected our tongues and our speech. He goes on to say, verse 15 and 16, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Sin has affected our relationships with one another. We are swift to shed blood. We are grateful to those who have given much, who have sacrificed all for our freedoms as we recognize and remember this weekend. But we also ought to remember statistics like the $225,000 per life lost in World War I and how that should show us the degree to which man will go for violence and bloodshed. I find that one astonishing. The justification for various things. It's because of our wickedness. It's our sinfulness. And sin has not only affected our relationships with one another here on the horizontal, but in verses 17 and 18 we see also our relationship with God. In verse 17, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, do you see a fear of God today in our world? I would say no. And that's because our sinful condition rooted in that original sin in Genesis 3, that is man's attempt to be God, is still prevalent today and it's worsening. This was part of our discussion yesterday during men's study. And one of the things that I recognize in my own life, as Solomon himself declared, there's nothing new under the sun, is that sin has not changed from the very beginning. It began in the garden and was rooted in man's desire to be like God and everything we do in sin since that time is rooted in the same. It's our desire to be God. 
It's, it's our fighting against His sovereignty and His will and His desire and His plan. And we see this increasing, it seems, almost exponentially in our culture, this lack of fear of God and people operating as if they are their own God. This is our human condition. It's not good. You could even say it's terminal. So then, as Paul starts to bring this argument to a close, in verses 19 and 20, he effectively says, we are all guilty. And we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, the jury comes back in the verdict, guilty. All of us. Every mouth stopped. No words to defend. Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. How do I know if I break the law when I'm driving down the road, if I'm going too fast? How do I know? The law is posted. With the knowledge of the law, it's 45 here. That's the speed limit. I go above it. Guilty. It's that simple. It's amazing how we can try and convince ourselves that we're not, especially in that situation too. It wasn't frequent enough. It just The sign was way back there. I figured we were in a new zone. Right? I saw everybody else. They seem to be going faster. I was just keeping up with the pace of traffic. You know, it's dangerous if you go too slow and everybody else is going fast, right? I've never made these arguments before myself. I've only heard them. Such simple examples before us. And so you see God's law, it is His perfect standard. And by the law made known, whether in text or whether that law written on our hearts because we're created by Him, it's His perfect standard. And His law is not just the Ten Commandments, though those alone are enough to condemn. His law is much more extensive. And no deeds of the law are able to justify. That is, you can't keep it well enough to declare your own righteousness. You've broken His law. And so you are guilty and you have to stand before a good and righteous God on Judgment Day. What's going to happen? Well, I'm a good person. Really, I am. Really, have you ever looked at a person to lust after them? Oh, okay, you're guilty of adultery. Have you ever looked at someone with, with hatred in your heart? Okay, you're guilty of murder. Have you ever taken something, regardless of its value? I don't care how small it is. If it wasn't yours, you took it. Okay, you're a thief. That's three. Shall I continue with the other 610? Probably not necessary, right? Because by our own admission, standing before a holy and righteous God, who is a good judge, and if he's a good judge, then he is going to be just. Well, by your own admission, you're a thieving, adulterous murderer. So are you a good person? None are righteous, Paul says. So what do we do? And you may be inclined to... 12, 14, I'll just go ahead and close there, right? So uplifting today. It would be cruel if I ended there, wouldn't it? Fortunately, that's not it. Yes, that is our spiritual condition. Yes, Christian, before you knew Jesus, that is where you were. Yes, if you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, this is a description of your life. And differently than me, who's covered by the blood of the Lamb, you still stand guilty. We continue on, Paul writes, and we only have time. We'll just do 21 and 22 for the sake of time today, and we'll continue next week. Verse 21, look at this. We love it when we see this. But now, but now, the righteousness of God, not your righteousness, because your righteousness is terrible, right? It's not, it's not, it's good for nothing. It's unprofitable. You have no righteousness, The righteousness of God apart from the law. Praise God for that. Because His law is perfect. It's a holy standard. All His law does is show me 
that I don't measure up. Well, that doesn't sound very kind. Why does he want me to feel that way? Why does he, he doesn't leave you there. He says, no, his righteousness of God apart from the law is now revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, the law and the prophets spoke of it. It said there is coming one who's a Messiah. From the very beginning of the time when man entered into sin, God says, I'll take care of this. I'm not only going to cover you, Adam and Eve, but I'm going to make a way. And so now it's been revealed, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to what? To just a few. No, to all, on all, who what? believe man you don't think that's gracious merciful wonderful it's that easy indeed it's that easy Lord, i believe and now all of your efforts to prove yourself to 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 look some way to somebody to achieve your own righteousness and the constant failed attempts feeling like you don't measure up feeling like you, you can't do anything right all this effort and, and weary because you're doing it in the strength of the flesh, maybe even going to church, serving, getting involved in different things and feeling like, man, I just don't feel like anything's different. I'm just trying to convince myself I'm a good person. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. All of a sudden, Lord, I believe. Lord Jesus, I want your righteousness. He says, it's what I died for, to cover you. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us in a short song. We'll continue this next week. But listen, friends, whether the person who's just in sin and pursuing it, or the person who thinks that they're okay because they do a few good things, or the person who thinks because I grew up in church, I'm okay, none of us are different. We're all lost, none of us righteous, but with Jesus Christ, we're redeemed. See, Paul so successfully helps us to see the, the gravity of our spiritual condition, but then points us to Jesus and says, look, his righteousness is available for you if you just believe. I was reminded in my reading this week of a passage in Revelation that I love very much. In Revelation chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18, it's here Jesus addressing the lukewarm church, the church in Laodicea, and he says this, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, Jesus here references our spiritual condition. He says you've convinced yourself otherwise, but you're just poor, wretched, and naked. But he doesn't just leave us there. He never has from the very beginning here in, in Genesis all the way to Revelation. He's consistent as he says, I counsel you this, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He says, let me cover you. Let me make you rich. Let me clothe you. Let me redeem you. That's what he desires for all of us. But it's up to us to believe. And so I would just, to each of you, and perhaps those watching online as we close, if you're here today and you've not surrendered your life to Christ, make today that day. Continue no longer in the pattern of your sin, but rather say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I confess my sins. I ask forgiveness. Lord, would you take your place on the throne of my heart? But I also appeal to those of you who know Jesus, but maybe you, like so many of us, find yourself easily slipping back into your own works, your own pursuit of righteousness, convincing yourself that it's about the things that you do that will earn God's favor instead of resting in the finished work of the cross. By surrendering your life to him and just saying, Lord, it's yours. You do with me what you will. If that's you today too, I would just encourage you during this last song and as we pray to get right with the Lord.
If you would agree with me in prayer. Father, we do give you thanks, Lord, this morning for your word. Once again, it's difficult for us. It's challenging, Lord. It convicts. But that's good. We need it, Lord. And as hard as it, hard as it is sometimes, Lord, to consider our own sinful condition, may we not dwell on that, but, Lord, may we look to you and your grace and your mercy and remember, Lord, how much we've been forgiven. And to know that those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is therefore now no condemnation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we have the promise of eternal life with you. May we rejoice in that here this morning, Lord, to consider what it is that you've taken us from, what you've redeemed us from. May that, Lord, fuel our praises here now as we lift our voices to you in song. And Father, I pray you'd move on our hearts here now that if there's any confession, Lord, that must take place, any repentance, Lord, any surrender, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would so move that it'd be a work of you, not of my own words, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.